The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Well, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Ryan Church. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at UPC and part of the contingent that helps lead university ministries, the inn here. We hope that you find uh, this place here inviting and warm, much like you might find a big bonfire on 17th and 47th. I know last week I got to meet several people that were here for the very first time. So if you are here this week for the second time, or maybe you are here for the first time, please make yourself at home. We, we hope that this is a place that you can feel welcome, but also bring your, uh, your curiosity and your questions uh, that you have as you either explore the faith or seek to go deeper with Jesus. All that to say to all y'all, we're glad that you're here tonight. Uh, now, like many of you, I participated in celebrating what I think is the most important day uh, in, in the Christian faith uh, this past Sunday. Uh, the resurrection of our Lord here. I got to worship at 7 a.m. Uh, before probably many of you were a- awake. And I got to say that I love worshiping in the sanctuary here at UPC on Easter Sunday. There's a, a brass ensemble. There's an organ, a big choir. It is, uh, you know, a mighty fortress is our God. Uh, Jesus Christ has risen today into the hallelujah chorus to finish the service. And it's just one of those, one of those things that gets you fired up. And, and so I'm, I'm excited post-Easter. I hope that you are as well, however you choose to reverently worship on uh, Easter Sunday. But one of the things that I want to share with you as I was walking home from uh, Easter Sunday, and I, I can even back up and tell you that my wife and I live here in the neighborhood. So last night when uh, I heard fireworks going off, <laughs> I was thinking, wow, you know, I guess they're excited that Duke won the national championship, or maybe they're excited the Mariners won their opening game, but I had no idea what was going on. I, I was just like, fireworks in April. Okay, you know, this is cool. Had I known that uh, there was a big party out there, I probably would have rolled out of bed and come out and join all y'all. Sounded, sounded like a, uh, a pretty good time. But it's, it's great being able to, to walk back and forth from, from home and church. And so this Sunday, as I was walking home from the Easter service, I was uh, reflecting on what our senior pastor here had to, to say on Easter, and it was the text where Mary Magdalene gets to the tomb first, and then Peter and, and John uh, follow. And I was thinking about, about the hope of what we hear on Easter Sunday. This hope of what is not in the tomb. That what Mary and John and Peter expected to find on that Sunday morning was not there. And this empty tomb is this, this great symbol of hope that we have in, in the Christian faith. So I found myself thinking about there is this empty tomb. And I find myself on an Easter Sunday saying, I think that this Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But this power that raised Jesus from the dead... How is it at work in us now? 
Why does Easter Sunday matter to us now? And how in the world do we figure this out? Have you thought about this? Why does the power of the resurrection matter to us even now? So my hope is that as we continue in this series that Janie got us started with last week, that we might engage this great hope of life in death. As we engage this paradox of strength and weakness. As we engage this paradox, I hope that we can grasp the reality of the power of the resurrection in our weakness. That is to say, in our lives. And hopefully as we experience that, we can see it at work in our communities as well. Now, Janie introduced us to this paradox by leading us through the Apostle Paul's boasting about his weaknesses instead of his strengths as outlined in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, she concluded her talk uh, by, by quoting Paul, by, or by Paul quoting Jesus, is saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. A very popular uh, piece of scripture. Now, this, when we think about the reality of a statement like this, and the, the idea of strength in weakness, it has the potential to cramp our style a little bit. It's this paradox that, that is true. And it, it, the way that it cramps our style is to, is to think, if this is really true, it's calling me to weakness. You know, where, where some of us are probably thinking, wait a minute, this is the time that I'm, I'm trying to work on my swole factor. Spring and summer are coming and I, I, I want to look strong, baby. Yeah, I find myself some ladies. Booyah! <laughs> that it seems a, a little... It's going to cramp our style. It's going to interfere with how we might usually think about what we want to be. This idea of strength and weakness might make for great Sunday school songs. But as we get into college and pursue our lives, is it really true? Strength in weakness? It's a paradox. Now, what is a paradox? A paradox is simply a statement that contradicts itself or seemingly contradicts itself, but yet is true. Now, they're all over Scripture, particularly if you read through Jesus. You get all sorts of these paradoxical statements. You know what I'm talking about. You got to die to live. The first shall be last. I believe, help my unbelief. These statements are in paradox. How can they both exist at the same time? What I want us to consider as we continue thinking about strength and weakness is that this idea of paradox pushes us to, to looking past how things may seem at first glance. That things are not always as they seem. Any of you that have watched or DVR the TV series Lost because it's going on right now. So you're here. Congratulations. You shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) 
part of, part of the premise of Lost is that nothing is as it seems. It's full of paradox. It's one of the things that makes it such a, a compelling show that people like uh, the human staff keep coming back to over and over again. This whole idea of paradox, it's a seeming contradiction, yet it moves us towards gray. Now, there are places in the Christian faith for sure that are black and white. For example, the Ten Commandments. Lays it out pretty clear, do this. But there are other places. And the temptation in, in thinking about and living out the faith is always to go towards black and white simply because it's easier. It's much easier to understand. Often you hear Jesus, even when he talks in parables, people, the, the disciples are looking at each other going, what's he, what's he talking about? You see, things aren't always black and white. So as we continue this next few weeks looking at strength and weakness, that is looking at a, a paradox, we are existing in a little bit of gray. And for some of you, that's going to make you really uncomfortable. You want to push uh, people like me and Janie to talk in more black and white terms, but Jesus didn't always do that. But the truth is in tension, and sometimes the deepest, most profound truths are found in that tension. Why in the world would we want to do a series on a paradox like this where we enter into a great mystery? Two reasons that I want to share with you briefly. First, I, I hear so many of, of you come into my office or come into the human office and, and we'll meet and talk and I find that so many students are a slave to the cultural expectation to be strong, to be independent, to have no needs, to have a flawless transcript, a spectacular resume, gold medals, a perfect body, lots of money, and a partridge in a pear tree. With so many people are out there playing this game and they hate it. How many people come in and say, I just can't do this anymore? But it's the game that we're expected to play. And I would argue in the culture that most of you are existing in, this game is exaggerated. You've got to get good grades. If you're going to get into grad school to get a good job so that you have lots of money to, have, to have, buy lots of stuff and provide for your family. Okay? Not that those are necessarily bad things. But I've found, and I'll just tell you, that as you come in and share with the human staff about this, most of you are miserable pursuing this need to have to be strong all the time. It's making you miserable. The second is that sometimes in the Christian culture, we're trying to be faithful. And we want to bear witness to, to a, the sovereignty of God that... This sovereignty that says we serve a God that is large and in charge, so everything is all good. And because I, I follow Jesus, I need to look as if I have it all together. I know one of my great fears as just a Christian, uh, that's probably exaggerated as a pastor, is to be called a hypocrite. Thus, the temptation in a lot of Christian communities, and there's probably plenty in this room as well, but you know this in the places that you live, in the churches that you come from, perhaps other Christians that you see, that there is this temptation to, to, to think that if I'm going to be faithful, I have to look like I have it all together. Being a hypocrite is a great fear of mine. In fact, as I've shared from up here before, uh, one of the places that I'm least Christian is driving it's one of the reasons I don't have an ichthus, you know, the Christian fish on my car. 
Because I don't, I don't want to cut people off and have people go, oh, he's not a Christian. Although, although they, they, uh, they could see the, the UPC sticker or whatever in my window and be like, what, what's up with that? I thought Christians weren't supposed to do that. And I'm like, whatever, I know I'm in. I don't know what, I don't care what they're So, all that to say, there is this, there is often this temptation in Christian cultures for us to look different than how we're really feeling or to look different than how we're experiencing or not experiencing God. So friends, the reason that we're doing a series on strength and weakness this spring is to invite you to not hide. To invite us as a community to not hide. Part of what a spiritual community is, is that we can be before each other with our weaknesses glaring, in fact, potentially boasting in our weaknesses. That is to say, totally okay with what we're not. Totally okay with the ways that we come in with baggage. Okay with the ways that we have been healed, and okay with the ways that we have not been healed. I hear a group of students that comes into the inn, comes into our office, and you're just dying for people to be real with you. You're craving authenticity. And I think one of the things that keeps us from authenticity is having to look like we're strong all the time when really many of us are dying going, I hate playing this game either in the wider culture or the Christian culture. I think Jesus has something to say to us tonight as we come to the text. Let me pray for us before we do. Lord, help us to find you in tension. We don't understand what it means to find strength as we turn toward our weaknesses. Uh, so, so, Lord, if we're going to step out and do this and engage this, we're counting on you to meet us here because we're going to need the courage that comes only from your spirit. So guide us as we, as we come to, uh, to Scripture tonight. Speak to us through it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As we come to, to what we're going to read tonight, we're going to do a bit of a, we're going to do a few snapshots through the Gospel of Mark. Okay, and I apologize for the ways that this is going to move pretty fast. This, this might be a new way uh, for some of you in, in how you, you read scripture. But I want to hone in on a theme that I, I noticed in the Gospel of Mark as I studied this a little bit uh, in, uh, during the winter quarter. Okay, what you're going to see in these snapshots is what we might call, uh, what, what I'm, I'm calling relational reaching out. What I mean by that is, is that it's a reaching out that goes two ways. And we see that play out in, in a handful of different ways as, as we come to uh, these various uh, texts uh, tonight. Um, but before, before I do that, I want to I give you this, this image. Um, so back probably in the middle part of this decade, um, I used to be an athlete. That is, before I had kids, uh, you know, before I, I was, uh, well, started working in, in this job. I, I ran five marathons. And what I can tell you about marathons is that training for marathons 
is a lot harder than actually running marathons. And one of the reasons that that's true is that when you're training for marathons, a lot of those runs you do on your own, and you have to you have to find places or stash the course with water or Gatorade or whatever you're going to drink because you never run a marathon in training, you know, which is part of the paradox of why I would say. Uh, running, training for a marathon is actually harder than running a marathon because you never actually run a marathon in training. Anyway, you'd find me on Saturday mornings driving wherever I was going to run. I'd stash some Gatorade in the bushes or whatever. And then when I'd get there, I'd have a hard time finding it, probably because I was just looking for a break. I was probably going, oh, Lord, please don't let me find it for like seven or eight minutes because I don't want to start running again. But one of the reasons that it's easier to, to actually run on race day is because there's people lined up on the streets throughout the course. And there are, are people that are there to, to hand you water at every mile. Uh, in all the marathons I've done, roughly every mile there is, uh, there's a station uh, to get water where people, much like the image shows you, there's somebody handing, handing some water out. Well... Having those people there is a great relief. I don't have to scrounge around the bushes looking for something to drink at mile 20, which is nice. But unless I actually go over and grab that water, it really makes no difference if that water is there. Just because somebody is there reaching out, while it's comforting and it's nice to know I don't realize the benefit of what they're offering me until I go over, grab the water, and take it down. It's that type of image that I want you to notice as we come to the text tonight. Because I think Jesus is one that is there reaching out. It's an easy thing. We learn about, this is, this is kind of Jesus 101. But what I caught more this winter was how people responded to Jesus and who those people were that were responding in that way to Jesus. Here we go. Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 32. Again, these are snapshots. We're going to take a look at at about five of them. And this this should move pretty fast. Mark is a great gospel that it it moves really quick. So if you want to close your eyes and just imagine these things, Mark's a, a good gospel to do that with. Okay, Mark chapter 1, verse 32. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus. They brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Skip down the page a little bit. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him. Man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See to it that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices that Moses command you for cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Let's move on to to a couple of verses down. Chapter 2. A few days later, 
when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers there that there was no room, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him, Jesus, a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered down the mat. And the mat was lowering the mat the man was lying on. (laughs) When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. The story goes on to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. Chapter 3. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good, to do evil, to save a life or kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger, at the Pharisees, at those who were strong, deeply distressed at their stubborn, their hardened hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians on how they might kill Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 6. When he saw, when this demon-possessed man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran to him, fell on his knees in front of him, he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, For we are many. And he begged Jesus again to not send him, or begged Jesus again and again to not send them out of the area. Jesus again goes on to heal. Finally, Mark 5, chapter 24. So a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she reached out and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I could just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Well, you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from suffering. Snapshots. Jesus reaching out, but people coming and reaching out to Jesus. People who are weak. A paralyzed man. A demon-possessed man. Another who's sick. People who are weak. They have no other option. Son of 
Jesus, Son of the Most High God, help me. Yet there's also these, these who are strong, who are in charge, these Pharisees, that what's their response to Jesus? We're going to plot to kill him. What I want you to see is this, this classic image of Jesus as one who comforts the afflicted, but who can sometimes afflict the comforted. Jesus is one who reaches out, but one that when we in weakness reach out, becomes real to us. How do you approach Jesus? Do you approach Jesus with your weakness, your ailments, your sickness, your demons? Or are you approaching Jesus with strength, power, and competence? However you approach Jesus will have a striking impact on how you experience Jesus. I want to continue the invitation that Janie gave us last week to turn toward our weaknesses, trusting that as we do, we are turning to a gracious, compassionate, and redeeming Jesus that we know by the power of the resurrection. Okay? So how do we do that? How do we, do, how do we, how do we turn into our weaknesses? How, do, how does this become real to us? I want to I make three brief reflections before we come to this table. First is this. And it seems simple enough. Confront and confess. Where are you weak? Where are you faking it? Is there this thing that is the thorn in your flesh that as much as you would love for it to, to go away, that thing about you, about yourself, that you would love to just disappear, but it won't? Perhaps it's an addiction. Why don't you tell somebody about it? But Ryan, if I do that, people aren't going to like me. I might get kicked out of, uh, of the community that I'm living in. I might not be able to do some of the things that I want to do if I confess that. Well, let me tell you that if you don't confess it, those things are going to happen anyway. Those weaknesses that you may think you're hiding, honestly, they're a lot more apparent than you probably think that they are. Exhibit A, Tiger Woods. Been living a double life, thinking that he was faking it. And what happens? He could have said something years ago and, and cut it off, but now it's gotten exponentially worse. You might as well confess, my friends, because people are going to find out anyway. And when you confess, you can, you can kind of, uh, you can, you can take some of the power away from that, that weakness. One of the, Things that, that I'll confess to you that is a terrifying thing for me each week is that I absolutely suck at remembering names. And it, it, makes, it makes coming in to the inn every week a terrifying experience because one of the things that I know has to happen is it usually takes me two different contexts 
to meet somebody before their name actually sinks in. And if all I ever do is meet people at the end, it all blurs together in my mind. It's really, it's a hard, terrifying experience for me. And I know that, that as I approach people that I've met two, three, seven times, it's always em- embarrassing for me. Perhaps working at a 3,500 member church is not the best thing for me to do because the, the experience is repeated pretty much every Sunday. I'm terrible at names. So the, the habit that I've gotten into has been to go up to people and say, I'm so sorry, but I, I, can't, I can't remember your name. Now, while it doesn't, make the, it doesn't really lighten the embarrassment, I still feel bad. There's, there's something about it that my inability to remember seems to to disappear a little bit and it's more saying look I am believe it or not interested I'm trying to do my best here but everybody knows when I'm faking it hey what's up pal <laughs> hey bro hey what's up sis okay people are like oh he's so nice he called me sis actually I can't remember your name <laughs> confront and confess people And quit being scared, because if you don't do it now, it's going to come out anyway. So you might as well do it now. You might as well do it tonight. That's what leaning into our weaknesses might first look like for you, is just being able to confront and confess whatever it is. Second, when we do this, we're set free. When we see the leper in chapter 1, who, you got to understand, a leper would have had to, to walk around and have to qualify everything that he would say. He was not allowed to speak freely. He, every place he had to go, he would have had to say, unclean, unclean, don't come near me. You might get what I have. Quite a weakness. You don't, you don't get to freely speak. But here's what I want you to see, is that The leper's illness does not get the last word. Yet, even when he's healed, what we we hear is he's healed. And then uh, Mark makes the point to say he went about speaking freely, even though Jesus told him not to. He was not only freed from his illness, he was free to speak. But here's what I I want you to understand. Is that leper, everybody probably knew him as a leper. And even as he's healed... And even as he can speak, people would still identify him as, oh, that leper, that old leper, perhaps that recovering leper. The weakness, the illness, the ailment does not get the last word. Uh, One of the the ways that I've experienced this in my own life, I don't recall if I've shared this from up front or not, but uh, I have in my life become a seasoned veteran of counseling, uh, seeing a, a therapist. And what happens when I go to sit with a therapist where I'm sharing some of the, the events uh, of my past, some of the issues that I've had in my life? Uh, sometimes it can feel a bit or, or come off as a bit narcissistic to go and talk to somebody about yourself for an hour and often you're looking at things that are in in the deep past. Why would you do that? Well, what that process has been for me has been a 
an opportunity to see that God has redeemed way more in my life than I've given God credit for. This word redeemed is, is, is a word that comes out of slavery. That when a slave is set free, that is when they are redeemed. And, and so as I have gone and turned into my weaknesses, confessed them to a therapist, processed them with, with more words than, frankly, I would want to, what I begin to understand is that those issues, that past, does not get the last word on me. But the redemption that I experience by the power of the resurrection. Remember that empty tomb? Is what actually defines. We're set free. In our weakness, we see that this is real. And that's my final, the final point that I want to make. That in our weakness, in our weakness is the place that Jesus becomes most real to us. In our weakness, we experience the reality of Jesus' redeeming work. Jesus becomes real in the same way that those people holding out cups on the side of the marathon course aren't just holding out cups, that when I take that, when I say, I can't finish unless I have water. That's when the reality of those people that are standing there becomes real to me. When I recognize that I can't do it. When I'm struggling along the way. That's when Jesus becomes real to me. Here's an example I want to give to you. And I give it to you as an encouragement. That the, some of the books that have inspired me most uh, in my life. Whether it's, it's you know, from, from popular nonfiction to uh, books that I read that, that connect to the Christian faith. The best books I've read are not written by experts. Frankly, they're not written by professors. The best, this isn't going to shock you. The best books I've read are not textbooks. The best books I've read are written by people that deeply struggled with how to find their identity in Jesus. To how to make their way in this world. They're not experts on the issue. They're people that really struggled with it. I want to I offer up to you that as you confess your struggle, as you say, this is, this is who I am and this is what I can't do, that's where, that's where the influence in your life actually begins to flow out of. All of a sudden, you have a credibility as one that is struggling as opposed to having a false expertise on something that you might be faking it on anyway. Jesus becomes real when we say, I cannot overcome this addiction on my own. I can't overcome this eating disorder on my own. I can't overcome this this addiction to pornography on my own. But when when you ask for help on the journey, inevitably other people start going, neither can I. I need help there too. In our weakness, we have the opportunity to see that the power of the resurrection is a power that transforms. That can change us. But we've got to confront that reality first. So the question that we come to tonight is, how will you approach Jesus? 
Are you going to approach Jesus as one who has, has it figured out? Who has the answers? Or are you going to approach it as one who is weak and comes with curiosity and confusion? How is Jesus going to become real to you?